Hello and welcome to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. I'm Martha Sutsui Billens, and today's episode is with Pedro Mateo Pedro. Pedro Mateo Pedro is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto and the executive director of the Guatemala Field Station at the University of Maryland. Pedro is a native speaker of Lanhobal, a Mayan language of Guatemala. His research focuses on the documentation and description of Mayan languages, specifically language acquisition, Mayan languages in contact, and dialectal variation. Pedro received his PhD in linguistics at the University of Kansas in 2010 and completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard University. Pedro has taught at universities in Guatemala, Mexico, and the United States. Additionally, Pedro has worked on the production of educational materials in Mayan languages in coordination with different institutions in Guatemala, such as the Ministry of Education and the Academy of Maya Languages of Guatemala. So I really enjoyed talking to Pedro and learning more about his research. He works, uh, a lot of his research focuses on uh, child language learning, language acquisition, which is very different from a lot of linguists who work with endangered languages, because usually, as most people who are listening to this probably already know, the speakers um, are quite elderly, and the new babies in the community are acquiring the majority language. So, in the case where I work, that's Japanese. Um, in Pedro's case, that would be Spanish. But he actually does research in communities where children are still acquiring their local language, their Mayan languages. Um, and that's, I think, very interesting because it's not something you hear about so much in this field. Additionally, Pedro's collaboration that he's been doing in the communities I found so inspiring. Um, everybody knows that we're that we should be always collaborating and involving the community and listening to what the community thinks the what direction they think the the research should go in. But Pedro is actually taking it one step further by not only training community members in linguistic data collection, but also linguistic data analysis. Um, So yeah, so I just found him really inspiring and I'm so excited for everyone to hear this interview. Okay, well, thank you so much, Dr. Pedro Mateo Pedro, for coming onto Field Notes. I really appreciate you taking time to share your experiences and your expertise with Field Notes, myself and the listeners. So to start, can I ask you how you first became interested in field linguistics? Like, how did you first become a linguist? Thank you for this opportunity. And um and um, my interests, interest in linguistics became, I think, after uh, going to a boarding school. So I went to a boarding school 
where um, there were many Mayan languages were there because different students from different Mayan communities. But the most important thing was that I took, uh, I think it was the only class, but it was a class on the grammar of Mayan languages. I learned a little bit about the grammar of Mayan languages and a little bit about Anhobal. And I think that was kind of the motivation for me to try to trying to understand how languages work. And after the boarding school, then I went to the university and uh, studied a little bit of uh, linguistics. It was mainly about applied linguistics. So was that um, when you were still living in Guatemala? Yeah, I was uh, living in, in, in Guatemala. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, yeah, and I forgot to mention that I'm originally from from Guatemala and also uh, a speaker of one of the Mayan languages spoken in Guatemala, which is Anjobal. For uh, our listeners who maybe aren't uh, familiar with Mayan languages, can you speak a little bit about like the different Mayan languages and how they all interact? Um, just a bit about like the language context. There are about 30 Mayan languages spoken, and they are mainly uh, located in the southern part of Mexico, Guatemala, Belize, and Honduras. And in Guatemala, there are about 21 Mayan languages spoken, and one of them is uh, Kanhobal. So Kanhobal is the Mayan language, as I mentioned, is the Mayan language that I speak. And it is spoken in the four communities in Huehuetenango, in the western part of Guatemala. And it's spoken by about 100,000 speakers. speakers. And for different factors like uh, the civil war that happened in Guatemala, many speakers uh, moved to other countries, for example, in Mexico uh, or for example, the U.S. and and Canada. One thing to mention about the situation of the Mayan languages in contrast to Spanish is that all Mayan languages have an unofficial status. Mm. So they're unrecognized. Yeah. So in this case, the official language is Spanish. Therefore, this language is used in public services, for example, education, justice, health service, for example. Mm. But then Mayan languages, uh, in this case, more specifically, it has, I mean, it's its context of uses, for example, it's very limited. It's used at the community level, for example, or at uh, home. Mm. So just in the like family, home, neighborhood domains, would you say that some Mayan languages have a min- minority within a minority situation, like some are much larger than others. D- do you do you feel that? Well, in the case of Guatemala, for example, so there are four uh, uh, Maya languages that have more uh, number of speakers. So that includes Quiche, Mam, Kechi, and Kachikel. So those are the four Maya languages with this majority of number of speakers. Mm-hmm. Then there's another group of Mayan languages that we can call perhaps like minority in terms of their uh, number of speakers. Mm-hmm. But 
it has advantage and disadvantages. I mean, in this case, where these languages uh, fall within this majority or minority. So in terms of, uh, in this case, in the educational system, for example, most of the time, the majority languages are the ones that get more attention. In this case, there's more production material. Educational materials are much easier to produce in this majority. I mean, languages that have more number of speakers, for example. But in the others that are minority languages, then th those kind of productions are very, very low. Mm -hmm. So I think that's that's the main uh, distinction there. But there is, of course, one common thing among these Mayan languages that are, I mean, one as I mentioned, is that they are not official languages and also, their status is really different compared to Spanish, for example. So they have, so even though there, there is a difference between uh, minority and majority, they have the same problem. Yeah, yeah, I see. Do you see that in online, uh, are the majority Mayan languages like Quiche, is it more prevalent? online if, if a speaker of a bigger language wants to use Facebook or something in their Mayan language, is it more accessible for them to use it than the smaller ones or? That's an interesting question. I, I'm not sure about that. I think, well, I would say that there's more material in these languages. And of course, yeah, there are some that are online, but I think there are also some materials that are online with this, uh, Mayan languages that we are labeling here as uh, minority languages mm -hmm. and also that uh, speakers are kind of using more uh, don those languages in, in online, for example, or in social media, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I just spoke to Hilaria Cruz, uh, who is originally from Mexico. She's a speaker of Chatino, and she said that before it was impossible, like it would have been impossible to use Chatino online because there was no orthography. So that's like one way that speaking a smaller language can be um, a disadvantage if you're trying to use social media or you want to have like a Facebook group. And now they're able to do that kind of thing because they have the orthography. But yeah, I just wondered if if that applied at all. Yeah, so yeah, in, in, in the case of Maya languages, yes. Yeah, so there, I think here, if I wouldn't make a difference between minority or majority, but I think there are speakers that are using, uh, for example, Facebook to... Uh, write in the language, for example. And of course, some of them know the orthography and others do not, but they uh, try to write in that language. Yeah, that's interesting. Moving back into like the, the linguistic research side of things, can you talk a bit about your own main research interests? What, what are you like mostly focused on? I work on language documentation, uh, language revitalization with the main focus on child language acquisition. So I have been working on the uh, documentation of Mayan languages, but mainly about how children acquire languages, for example. So I had the opportunity to be involved in different uh, projects like Kanhobal, uh, Chuh, Chol, Mam, and recently, uh, Quiche and Aguacateco. 
And as for my main research, so I focus on the how children acquire the verb morphology. For example, in this case, when we talk about tense aspect, mark on the verb, agreement, and the person, for example, how person are marked there, and then all kind of suffixes that are marked on the on the verb. And then I have uh, explored a little bit about how children acquire causatives, for example, or the classifier system in Kanhobal, in this case. So Kanhobal, uh, as all Maya languages of the Kanhobalan branch, for example, uh, they are classifier languages. So I have studied a little bit about the acquisition of nominal classifiers and also uh, numeral classifiers. So those are kind of the research that I have been kind of working on. I, I wanted to ask you a bit about the animate versus non-animate classifiers. Um, can you say a little bit about how that works? So I would like to talk a little bit about the numeral classifiers. So there, there are three main uh, numeral classifiers. One is for animal, uh, which is con. Uh, the other for uh, people, one. And then for object is app. So let's say we're going to count three people. So we say the root for three is osh. Is osh one. So three people. Oshkon, three animals, and then Oshet, three objects. So the thing that I would try, so the, 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 the idea about animate and inanimate, I think it's going to be with objects, for example. And then the others will be kind of animate. So consider here that animals and people uh, are animate, for example. And uh, when I uh, studied the acquisition of nominal cla numeral classifiers, for example, is that it seems that the children have problem in acquiring this distinction between who is, I mean, who is who. Uh, so they are good in acquiring the app, which is for object. Mm -hmm. And then they are, have some struggles in how to acquire or how to use one and on. And what I have noticed is that they kind of use the app as a default form and then, oh. then extend that app to animals and to people. So when it comes to the question, well, what's, I mean, in terms of the, the, the decision between animate and inanimate, it seems to, it seems to me that they have, they are good in acquiring the classifier for inanimate. But then when it comes to animate, is a kind of, there's a, they struggle with, with that, so that's kind of my understanding on on, on that on the acquisition of of numeral classifiers. That's really interesting. So, do you think that this is some kind of language loss or language change that's happening, or it's just that the children are learning their language this way? That's my. I would suggest that that's a part of the process of acquiring mm -hmm. the language. This is not. I mean, this is not. Only in Kanhobal that we see that there are other languages, for example, like, Yuka, like Yucatec, where also children have problem in acquiring the distinction between animate and inanimate. And this has been also shown for other uh, languages that 
or classifier languages. So what I'm trying to say is that this is not unique for for Kanhobal. According to other uh, studies, is that this process then is more like a problem for children. More as, it's more like at the semantic level. So in this case, like the meaning of those is kind of the problem that these children are facing. Yeah, it's um. It, we also have see this in Japanese. There's different classifiers for counting, and I'm a second language learner, Japanese speaker. And when I was learning, it was very overwhelming for me. Like I would just use the general one for everything because I was like, oh, different different things, different people, different animals. Like, so I think it's. It, I would say a, a classifier language is is more challenging in terms of. When it comes to the acquisition, for example. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I agree with you. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about your revitalization work? So I know that you've been teaching linguistics, like Mayan linguistics in Mayan communities, um, kind of going beyond the just having community members only collect the data and then that be the end of their role. Um, can you speak a little bit about your work there? So I think um, one reality of Maya languages is that, yes, it is true that they are, they are spoken uh, still. I mean, there are many speakers of Maya languages and where uh, children, for example, are acquiring those languages. But there's another reality that, in fact, some, some people are Mayan, but mm-hmm. they don't speak the language, for example. So... Mm-hmm. That's kind of the where my work falls there between uh, how to uh, maintain a language and how to revitalize a language. So it's kind of a combination of of both and both. And I would like to uh, emphasize here that as for uh, language maintenance, let's say, I have been uh, involved in different uh, workshops. So I have one that I really like to mention it's the one that we developed in uh that we do in 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 Kanhobal with some colleagues and also elementary school teachers in in my hometown which is uh well we started in my hometown and then we started to go all, i mean with or in other communities but uh this is a, a workshop that we do all in Kanhobal i mean these workshops have attracted many people and I think that's the one that is like really, uh, has, we have been sex- successful in this. So the idea there is that is to understand how the language works, for example, the understanding the structure of Hanobal, for example, but at the same time, uh, help in this case, elementary school teachers to, uh, develop their own material, for example. Mm-hmm. So in this case, uh, it's kind of the how to help these uh, speakers to work in their, in their own material, given the fact that the materials that comes, for example, in this case, from the Ministry of Education, for example, there are not many. So then how we can help these uh, people to create their own material, for example. But here, this is kind of an ideal thing. But the most important thing is for, for them to understand the truth of the language. So that's one thing in terms of workshop. I have been also teaching uh, linguistics to Mayan communities. In this case, uh, people to people who have been involved in the different projects that they have been involved in. So I think so. This is 
where uh, knowing a little bit about linguistics or knowing a little bit how my language works and how to relate that structure to other languages, or in this case, other Mayan languages, has been really helpful in terms of, of training. That's the other part for training. The other is about uh, developing workshops on how to teach Mayan languages as a second language, for example. So there, there is a, a, a method that I would like to mention here. It's a method uh, developed by Judith Maxwell and her colleagues. And they have been using this method for about 20 years with international students learning Mayan languages. And we have seen this method that is really uh, good when it comes to learn a language. So then we said, well, why, why is not we don't develop a workshop and, 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 and share this method with other people who are interested in teaching Mayan language or who are interested in learning Mayan language. So we, I think we conducted two or three workshops on how to use this method. I would say that that will be kind of the, the work that I have been trying to do in terms of uh, language uh, revitalization. What is, uh, sorry, maybe I missed it. What's the name of Judith Maxwell's method that she used? I think it's the Oshlahuch method. Oshlahuch Ach method. Uh, she has developed a manual that describes the different steps in that method. Okay. I'll link that in the show notes later in case people want to read more, more about it. Can you speak a little bit about the challenges or the advantages you've experienced as an insider linguist? Or do you think that there are any challenges or advantages that you've experienced? I would kind of say something like this. Uh, so when when you come to comes to this, I mean, meeting these challenges, like having one foot in the community in the other foot outside of the community. What I <laughs> what I try to say there is that it's about how to raise awareness of about the unique properties of your community's language. So I think that's one of the challenging part. I mean, because one thing that we we know for sure is that as I mentioned when we started uh, to talk is that Spanish is the official language. And it's the language that is known the most in the language that is taught at school, for example. Then the other language, like, mm, yeah, we can talk about those languages, or you are not allowed to speak in your your native language. So if you are not allowed to speak in your native language, then maybe you will not know about how that how your language works. So that's one of the challenge that I think it's interesting to mention here. The other challenge I think it's how to explain linguistics to speakers of your own, own community for in this case how 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 we can explain uh, technical terms for example in, to to people so it's kind of a, a challenge so in this case when it comes to work with community members or when it comes to explain how linguistics works or how the language works language works for example but I think there's a, a, a disadvantage I mean an, an advantage of this I need in this case uh, being able to speak the language or understanding the language. And then uh, this is a really helpful to explain uh, to 
community, but at the same time, uh, how to how this knowledge helps to train speakers of all Mayan languages, for example. So I think that's that's an uh, an advantage, for example. But the other thing for my case is basically, uh, I mean, being in the community or working in the community is like how to give back to your community. So I think that's the most important thing for me. Like, yeah, I know a little bit about linguistics. I uh, have been studying that language, but then how to share that knowledge with that community? And and and, and I mentioned before that uh, we developed uh, these workshops in Kanhobal, and that was one of the main idea of how to give back to the community that knowledge or how we can share that knowledge with the community. So we are speakers of the language, but then it's not the same when we are at uh, conferences, for example, in linguistics and trying to share what it's happening on Hobal, for example, in this case, at the linguistic level. But then how we can share that knowledge with the community, for example, in this case, who are the speakers of, I mean, the speakers of that, of that language. But that's one thing, I mean, being in the community. So I think here, uh, being a speaker of a Maya language, then uh, it's kind of different because you want to kind of help the community members in how to maintain their language. But then you have to think about being an, I mean, being outside. So one foot outside of the, of the community. And that is another challenge too, because again, you, I mean, as a linguist, you want to kind of, uh, people know what you do right, as a linguist or your research, then you have to kind of how to build a connection or a relationship or collaborative work with other uh, linguists, for example. So I think that's kind of the, the challenges and advantages that I see in my work in this case, being, I think, kind of in the middle, right? So yeah. here and there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's so true. And I think that the agendas of like the research, what is valued in academia and what is valued in communities don't always align. So it's very difficult to kind of like meet all the expectations if you're trying to balance these two things. No, I think there's an expression like that win, I mean, in the winning, let's say the community wins and we win, for example, as linguists. But I think in many cases, there's like, mismatch i mean like mm -hmm. perhaps we are toward our how the community can uh, help us to meet our needs but maybe we don't think in the opposite way that how we can help the community to meet its needs or something like that i think that's kind of the way that i would put that idea yes yeah absolutely i think that's really true Pedro, can you share with us, do you have any thoughts about what we can do to decolonize linguistics uh, and or more broadly academia? Yeah, thank you for this question. Well, it, it made me think about uh, how to how to think about it and how to answer this question. I think there's a whole discussion about this idea of decolonization. And there's also a discussion about who is doing a good or better job in decolonizing, for example, either uh, our anthropological linguistic linguists, for example, or linguists, for example. So I'm not going to 
go into that because again there are many ideas and I'm I don't consider myself an ex, an expert in discussing these kind of things but one thing that I would like to say is that uh, perhaps it's kind of related to what we were discussing in the in your previous question is like when we do linguistics for example or when we are doing linguistics or when we are in doing field work for example I think it's good to not to think much about our needs in gathering data, for example, but maybe we uh, should think about uh, uh, about the community, community's needs, or the needs of those speakers of that language. I think one of the the, the things that we have seen, for example, like we care about the language, we care about the the data, but maybe we don't think about those speakers of those languages. So I think that's one of my uh, suggestions. So, so one of my ideas there, uh, uh, when it comes to, uh, to 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 this idea, uh, the other is like uh, how to collaborate with community members. For example, in Guatemala, people talk about uh, linguistic extraction. Maybe it's that's not the, the I mean kind of the idea of how how we can change that. Maybe it's not about extracting that information but again how to give back that that knowledge or how we can collaborate with those uh, speakers for example or in other words how we can train them so we, so they they are in a, in, in, in a better position to collaborate with us for example based on their interest maybe it's good to stop in a a, a moment and, and and stop worrying too much about Theories, like we talk about theories, for example, in linguistics, uh, theory X, Y, and things like that. And then we take that theory in our head and then we go into the community and trying to apply that there. Maybe it's like, I'm not against any theory, of course, but maybe it's kind of doing the opposite, for example, like how to un- try to understand the language, for example. And then maybe the, the, the think about the vitality of the language of those speakers, for example. In, in, in your work. So in this case, kind of how to balance your research or your own work and your ideas and with the needs of those communities. And of course, it's important to uh, remind ourselves about some principles, for example, respect. So respect uh, the community, uh, build a relationship with that community. But most importantly, it's like uh, how to help each other. In this case, how we can meet our needs as linguists and also how we can meet the community's needs. Yeah. So I think that's how I would answer to that question. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Uh, do you have any advice that you would give someone who's just starting out, who has an interest in working in Mayan languages, like insider or outsider, and like an early career linguist, you what would you say to them? Yeah, uh, thank you for this question. I think the first thing that I would suggest, like, read about the culture and read about the about Mayan languages, for example. There are a lot of work uh, that have been done in these languages. So there are tons of descriptive grammars, dictionaries, for for example, and also there are some uh, studies from uh, from different theoretical perspectives. So I think they, you have will have a kind of general idea. So having a general idea of those will really help you to do your, your field work before uh, going to the community, for example. One thing that I would suggest is like contacting community leaders, for example. So those are the people that 
you should contact and who can help you in doing your your field work. One thing that I usually do, even though I am from Guatemala, even though I am a Mayan speaker or I belong to a Mayan community, but when I move, I go to a different community, for example, Mayan community, for example, I usually talk to uh, the authorities of that community. Uh, so let's say the mayor and then introduce myself. That's why I'm here and this is my name and I'm doing this kind of work. So just in case you see me wandering around, so I will be doing this. So in this case, you kind of introducing yourself and then getting the people to know you a little bit more. And the other thing is that uh, it's important to keep in mind that we have I mean, we are strangers, we are outsiders, and our culture is different from the other communities' culture. So I think here, showing respect is really important to your community or to the community where you work. So respect those, uh, the, the way that those people live, the way that those people do things. So for example, uh, they may, you may be offer something to drink or, or, or eat. For example, don't say no, because people are doing, in this case, indigenous people do their best to treat you well as their guest. And they even, they, even though they don't have it, they do their best to find it and give it to you. So I think saying a no to something is like you're not showing respect. And when you do that, then it's kind of, you are kind of preventing people to work with you. So I think that's will be my advice to someone who wants to uh, start doing field work in Mayan communities. Thank you, Pedro. Thanks. Thanks so much. Well, this has been really, really nice. I feel like I've learned a lot. I know, I know I've learned a lot. Finally, where can our listeners find you online if they want to read things that you've written or learn more about your research? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I think there's some information about myself at the linguistic department of the University of Toronto, where I'm currently working. And also, if someone is uh, interested uh, to know about my work, for example, I can be reached at my uh, email, uh, which is Pedro. Uh, dot Mateo at utoronto.ca. So I would be happy to uh, answer any question in that email. Great. Okay. Thank you so much, Pedro. This has been so amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you to you for the invitation and thank you for this conversation about doing fieldwork. We need to raise awareness about this. We know that, I mean, as linguists, uh, we need to learn uh, too many things, yeah. especially about working with communities. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. You've been listening to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. This podcast is hosted and produced by Martha Satsui Billens with production help from Laura Satsui. Our music is by Lobo Loco, and our logo is by Evil Designs. If you have a question or fieldwork experience to share, you can email us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lingfieldnotes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an Apple podcast review. Thanks for listening.